Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We shall read from Psalm 144, please. Blessed be the Lord, my strength which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him and the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. By thy heavens, O Lord, come down. And touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning, and scatter them. Shoot out thine arrows, and destroy them. Send thine hand from above, rid me. And deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity. Their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God. Upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rid me, and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after that similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. A psalm of David, David the king, who says, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. War is horrific. We're seeing some more of that horror than we used to. War correspondents across the world in days gone by would have sent back photographs that were published in newspapers. But now we're seeing it almost in real time, aren't we? We're seeing it on the internet. 
seeing it on our devices, seeing it on our television screens. And it's horrific. More horrific, perhaps, than we civilians can know. And today, as we look across the world, and as we see the horror that's going on in various places, we might reach the conclusion that we seem to be standing on a dreadful precipice, looking into a great chasm of conflict, perhaps even a third world war. And we're looking in far off places. We're looking across into Eastern Europe. We're looking into the Middle East. We're looking at the build-up of arms in the Pacific. And here we are in this United Kingdom, wondering and hoping that it won't affect us, but yet the ramifications for us on our streets even now is frightening. I'm not a Zionist. Nor am I one who believes that the modern state of Israel is in any way representative of the ancient people of God in the Old Testament. And I'm deeply suspicious of the secular government of the modern Israeli state with its pervasive security services and its support of all the woke agendas of this modern world. And yet at the same time, I am horrified at the massive Muslim presence in this nation, a presence that we've seen making itself manifest on our streets just recently. Islam, the supposed religion of peace, which seeks its peace, its form of peace, through conversion of the infidels. That's you, by the way, and me. And they will effect that conversion either willingly on your part or the point of a sword. And those who refuse to be converted are to be taxed and tortured and raped and beheaded. And people who have these extreme beliefs, that, by the way, is normative Islam. They are right here living in our midst. And faced with all of that, faced with the prospect of an escalation of violence, faced even with the possibility of nuclear conflict as NATO continually provokes Russia and China, faced with more suicide bombers and Islamic fanatics bringing terror to our streets, what are we going to do? As war stirs us in the face. David the psalmist was taught what to do in times of war. It might surprise you how he was taught because the rest of this psalm actually goes into some of that. And tonight, for a few moments, I want us to think of what the future might hold for us and to prepare ourselves, as David was prepared, to ask the Lord to be our strength, to teach us what to do in times of conflict. Look at verse 2. 
because the first thing that we see here is that we are exhorted to deal with the security of the human soul. David says in verse 2, My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust. I think the very first thing that's needed in these dangerous days in which we live is to be sure that we are ready to meet the God who is eternal and before whom we will answer. How is your soul? Look at the pronouns in this. David talks about my goodness, about my fortress, about my high tower, about my deliverer, about my shield. And you see that he's speaking about God here in a very, very personal way indeed. God is my strength, he says. Uh, That simply in Hebrew would be my rock, my unshakable rock in times of turmoil, standing on the rock, the rock Christ Jesus, standing on his word. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 7 rather, and verse 21 down to 25, we have that um, parable that Jesus gave to his disciples that we often tell to children about the wise man and the foolish man, the wise man building his house upon the rock. And Jesus says there, he built his house upon a rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. We're strengthened standing upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. God is my rock, my strength, my goodness. Here in verse 2, my goodness, I have no inherent goodness of my own. There's nothing within me that would make me look good in the sight of God, but he becomes my goodness. Christ takes my sin upon himself at the cross and he gives me his righteousness imputed to me. He took all my badness and all my sin upon himself. We're only good in the sight of God in Christ. God is my fortress. He's my high tower. He's my stronghold. He cannot be assailed. No natural fortress can help us no matter what we do in this world. We may find ourselves at the behest of, at, at the, at the mercy of evil forces. God offers us eternal protection and he is my deliverer. Hebrew, I'm told here, is very emphatic. He's a deliverer who is always near to us and ready to deliver us. And he is my shield and he guards me against the dangerous darts of my enemies. He is my shield to guard me against everything that comes against me from the evil one. And when a believer goes into battle, he carries this protection along with him. So all of these great superlatives. God, my strength. God, my goodness. God, my fortress. God, my deliverer. God, my shield. Those things in and of themselves are mighty and wonderful attributes of God. But the point here is, 
But in every case, David says they are mine. They're mine. He's my strength. He's my goodness. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my shield. David doesn't just know about God. He has a personal relationship with the God who created him and who redeems us. And look at how that relationship comes about in verse 3 and 4. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away, despite the fact that David is the king. He, he's writing this psalm in his kingly role. Look at the end of verse 2. He talks there about how God has subdued my people under me. This is the time when David has ascended the throne. And all of the people of Israel, at first the northern kingdom, had been rebellious, but they had come now. And they had acknowledged David as king. And the whole land is subdued beneath him. And now Israel, united together, is enjoying its greatest time of prosperity, the Old Testament Israel. And they've defeated their enemies and they're living in prosperity under David the king. And yet David is not haughty, he is humble. He recognizes that he has only a short time on this earth. That he's a man who is frail and weak and helpless. Unlike the other kings of the Middle East of his day and of later days who proclaimed themselves to be gods and to live forever. David says here, man is like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. How are we going to deal with our soul's security in wicked and evil days? By knowing God as our personal saviour through Christ. By coming like David came. By coming humbly before the Lord. By acknowledging that before him we are nothing and we have nothing. What is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Yet, the greatest, most wonderful thing of all time. God has sent his only begotten son for a worthless sinner. So go back a couple of verses and look at verse 2 again. When he talks about these personal pronouns, when he says that God is my strength and my goodness and my fortress and my deliverer and my shield, he says, it is he in whom I trust. Can I ask you tonight, without meaning to be a scaremonger, but just to be realistic, if tonight this situation in this world were to burst forth into a worldwide conflagration of war, 
If tonight there was to be a nuclear attack, if tonight we were to be plunged into World War III, if tonight the people who are living in our midst were to rise up against us, where would your soul be? When the sword comes, where would your soul be? Will you have the Lord as your strength, your shield? Will you be trusting only in him? Will you know that you've come and rested in Christ and that no matter what happens, you will be his for all of eternity? very first thing in days of to prepare yourself for days of war is to know that your soul is secure. Here's the second thing. Grasp something of the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 5 down to verse 7 with me. What's actually happening in these verses is that David is looking back. He's looking back over history. It's good to look back. They say that those who don't know their history are in danger of repeating their mistakes. Look back now with David and recall some of the great and mighty deliverances that God has wrought in the past. And that's what David's doing here. He's reminding himself of when the Lord delivered his people and he's calling upon the Lord to do it again, to come again and bring deliverance. Look at verse 5, for example. Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down and touch the mountains and they shall smoke. He's talking about the time when God came down to Moses at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Verse 6, cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out thine arrows and destroy them. He's talking about the time when God intervened to help Joshua during the conquest of Israel. Verse 7, send thine hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters. Well, surely he's talking about the time when God parted the rivers of the Red Sea, when the people of God were leaving slavery in Egypt and they came to that great stretch of water and God miraculously intervened to bring his people through. Today is the time to look back at those things, to take comfort from how God has dealt with us in the past and to comfort ourselves with the fact that we have a God who is sovereign, a God who is working his own purposes out. A God who is omnipotent, who is able to do what his will determines. And a God who is immutable, who never changes. And a God whose care for us will never fail. It's a good biblical principle. First Samuel 7 and verse 12. We're told that Samuel took a stone. And he set it between Mizpeh and Shen. And he called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us.
So we deal with our soul's security. And we remember that we have a God who is sovereign, who is omnipotent, and who never changes. And then we see verse 9, where David sings a new song unto the Lord. I think one thing that we have to do in times of great difficulty is to remember that the Lord has already gained the victory. And we should praise him. David's looking ahead here. He's anticipating the victory that is certain to be his, even in the days that lie ahead. Since the Lord is with him in all his battles, and he promises that when that victory comes, he will be found praising God, singing songs unto him, being careful not to think that he deserves any praise. Why is David rejoicing? Praising God for an expected military victory. When we've already said that war is horrific, that war is a bloody affair, that war involves death and suffering and destruction, this confuses people. People look at the Bible and they think, is the God of the Old Testament the God of the New Testament? Why is there so much war and so much battle and so much bloodshed in the Old Testament when the New Testament is full of love and forgiveness and peace? Some years ago, maybe around the year 2005 or thereabouts, I was driving down to Newry to take a Lord's Day morning service. And those were the days when I still listened to the BBC. I haven't done that for a long time. I've had enough. And on Radio Ulster, Sunday Sequence was on air. And there was a panel of dignitaries from the so-called four main churches. And they were being quizzed by the presenter on that very subject. Why does the New Testament seem to be different from the Old Testament? Why is the Old Testament full of bloodshed and battles and smiting and war? What's happening there? And the four men began to give their answer. And I never heard such dreadful obfuscation, such devious replies, stammering and stuttering as they they tried to explain away something that their wishy-washy beliefs couldn't cope with. Let's confront it head on. Why was there so much war in the Old Testament? I'll tell you why. Because the Old Testament points us to Christ. You know that, don't you? Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Scriptures is about him. It testifies of him. When God created the earth, he made it perfect. And he placed a man and a woman into it to tend it, to care for it, to serve and to obey him. And we know they failed. We know they sinned and they rebelled against God. And that very day, God spoke of a war. He spoke of a mighty battle. 
In Genesis 3 and 15, he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that war has gone on ever since. It has never stopped. It's the war between good and evil. It's the war between Christ and Satan. All of those bloody Old Testament battles are part of that war. As God's people physically conquered the promised land, as they wielded the sword of righteousness against the wickedness of evil regimes, the child-sacrificing inhumanity of the pagan nations that lived around them. But let's remember, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Even the wars, those wars were symbolic Symbolic of the great spiritual battle. Symbolic of the ongoing conflict. Just as the temple sacrifices. Just as the lambs slain on the altar. Just as the shed blood poured out. Just as the mercy seat and the tabernacle pointed forward to Christ. And spoke of his atoning death and resurrection. Those Old Testament battles point us to him and they speak of his war against evil and his ultimate victory as Joshua conquered the land. Jesus has conquered sin. And would you wonder why the four church leaders didn't know that or didn't want to know that? You see, we are part of that spiritual battle. We are soldiers of the cross. In David's day, those battles were desperate, hard-fought, grimy conflicts with all the gruesomeness of war. But Christ has come. The types and the shadows of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in him. And our battles are spiritual. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we battle against evil wherever we see it, knowing that in Christ, We are already more than conquerors. Christ Jesus. Lastly, we're going to prepare ourselves for the coming inevitable conflict by dealing with the security of our souls, making sure that we know the Savior, by understanding that God is sovereign and that he is in charge. By praising God for the victory that Christ has won at the cross and by being much in prayer for this nation and for the world. Verse 11 down to verse 15 is a prayer. You would do well to read it. Part of our preparation for the battle is to learn to pray. 
to pray earnestly for divine intervention in times of difficulty, national difficulties, international difficulties, and to pray with great openness and great honesty before the Lord. Sometimes I wonder why our government would not call for a day of national repentance Call for a day of prayer. Call for a time when people will plead with God to help us as he has done in the past. But then is it any wonder? Our nation is no longer governed by Christians, is it? Even nominal Christians. David talks here twice in this psalm. In verse 7 and in verse 11. And he says, Send forth thine hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strange children. Commentators will tell you that the Hebrew there means foreigners. David's prayer. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters from the hands of foreigners, whose mouth speaketh vanity. The right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Pray the Lord would give us Christian leaders. Pray the Lord would give us Christian politicians. Pray the Lord would give us a Christian king to reign over us and a Christian prime minister and a Christian home secretary a real Christian what of the national churches what of the established religions hear the prayers of the national religious leaders today, how they must weary God with their pathetic obedience to the atheistic spirit of the age, their prayers about climate change and diversity and acceptance of sexual abomination. Look at David's prayer here for a moment. David's prayer starting here in verse 11 and then verse 12 praying for the youth of the land, that our sons may be as plants, that our daughters may be as cornerstones. He prays for the well-being and for the protection of our children. There was never a time in this province like now for to pray for children, to pray for unborn children that they will actually be able to be born. And if they manage to make it into the delivery room alive, if they grow up, to pray for them in their schools where they're going to be subjected to sexualization from a young age, where they're going to be bombarded with television images nudging them towards immorality, scenes of homosexuality and perversion and materialistic, atheistic philosophies dealt to them in doses in their schools and their universities and the prospects of deliberate population reduction through forced vaccination and war. There was never a time that we needed to pray more for our coming generations than what there is right now. 
David prays in verse 13 for our food supply. Food's important to a nation. He prays that our garners may be full. I think that would be worth bringing before the Lord in prayer. These days in which we live. Affording all manner of store that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor. You pray for the food supply. Pray for the children. Pray for the food Pray for your individual security. Look at the breakdown of society. And David's prayer here in verse 14 is that there be no breaking in nor going out. That there be no complaining on our streets. Pray that society may be cohesive. Pray that there will be no further breakdown in the structure of society. Because the evil forces in our midst want to destroy the family, destroy the church, destroy everything that the Western values and Christian values have held sacred for so many years, destroy and take people away from the word of God, which was the secret of our greatness and our prosperity in days gone by. Pray that the Lord would cease her hands stay their hands stop them well if you've read this psalm tonight you're going to have to agree with me that the Bible is right up to date right up to date human nature hasn't changed what a prayer David's prayer for modern society if only the national leaders of our land would pray like David prayed if only they would get onto their knees and pray, pray for our young people, pray that we would be governed by godly people, pray for the youth of the land, pray for the farmers and the workers and the shops and the people who bring us the food that we need, the basic essentials of life. Pray that our, our society will be ordered in a godly fashion. For happy is that people that is in such a case. Why is there so much suicide? Why is there so much disruption? Why is there so much unrest? So much unhappiness? Is it because we are no longer governed as a Christian nation? Is it because we no longer pray in our schools? Is it because we no longer have Christian values? Is it because we've lost the open Bible? Is it because we've lost respect for the church, for the Lord's day, for the Lord himself, for his name is taken in vain in every context? That's why our ordered structured society today has broken down and yet happy is that people whose God is the Lord
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.